1: Howdy friends out of patience is on hiatus for a couple of weeks. So for the next few Tuesdays and Thursdays, we're going to be dropping our best of in case you missed it episodes from 2022 and 2021. Of course, if you didn't miss it, you don't have to listen to it, but we hope in case you did miss it, you'll enjoy the episode that you missed. I think that made sense in any case. If you did miss this episode, we hope you enjoy it. New episodes of Out of Patience, Vaxon, and some new correspondent segments will be dropping starting September 6th. Thank you, and have an amazing summer. But that's the opening of the show. Oh, is it really? Zach Fink, here and out of patience. <laughs> hey.
2: Third Eye Blind, not a sponsor. Not a sponsor, but we love them anyway. Hey, guys. All right, so what were your 90s hooks? God, the 90s. Um, Hootie? No. Creed. Na- 90s, I was more into, like, bowling for soup, Incubus, okay. red hot chili peppers. That's okay. Yeah. Ned's uh, Atomic Dustbin? No,
1: no. You know those guys? I don't even know those guys. The listeners <laughs> are like, what the hell is that? Ned's Atomic Dustbin.
2: Google it. It's a real band. That is might be one of the best band names I've ever heard. Ned's. What happened to Ned and his dustbin? Do we have any idea? They were probably bought by Procter & Gamble. Gotcha. Yeah. Who knows what they're doing with that technology? Black & Decker's yeah. Atomic Dustbin <laughs> now. An atomic level dustbin. It's on Etsy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: you're a 90s kid. Yes, very much. What was it like growing up in the 90s? Remind me, because I was like in college and like aloof.
2: Yeah, I would say uh, growing up in the 90s, I can sum up in one experience. One girl that I had a crush on, I might have been nine, she told me she loved uh, Justin Timberlake's ramen hair. I don't know if you remember, he used to do the oh, ramen yeah, the, up the, top. the blonde tips, right? yeah. So I went to a very Jewish middle school at the time and I snuck to the barber, showed him a picture of Justin Timberlake, and I said, Do this. Can you do this for me? Did frosted hips. I did frosted hips. I got the frosted hips. And I wore like almost a carpet on. My head to cover it because oh you can't God. have that at Jewish school. Yeah. And in front of the principal, my brother runs up and he grabs it, takes it off my head. And the principal just looks at me, goes to my office, and that's great. Yeah, you made me shave my head before I could come back. And the girl was like, "Oh, yuck!" As long as you weren't like dissing
1: not <laughs> Brittany, you're fine.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was. Just, I thought the rabbi might make me get another circumcision on top of shaving my head. I was lovely. Like, yeah. After that, I was like, "All right, whatever you say, Rabbi." We got. Did you have it. a second bar mitzvah at twenty six? Uh I wish I did that's a great idea. Yeah. You would have someone raise you on the chair you would only play 90s music you would right. really
1: do it right. Like a an aerobic power test of how your friends grew up. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. That's how you know. That's how you know. And that's pre-digital health. That's analog health, lifting up heavy people in a chair.
2: That was it. I at mean, the Jewish weddings. you used to get like diagnosed, I don't know, with hypertension, like, all right, well, you've got about six bar mitzvahs to attend. You're going to lift yeah. the chair and you'll be fine. That's almost like Tai for Jews. That's our Tai is Tai Chair. <laughs> that's <it. laughs> High chair instead of Tai I ask about the 90s
1: because I'm an 80s kid and I was diagnosed in the 90s, but I'm curious to hear from your perspective, the internet, Right? Like you were the last generation to understand what the internet wasn't. Yeah, totally. I mean, we grew up before there was even like, you know, Nintendo. So at least you were Nintendo. You had Sega. You had Sonic. We had Pac-Man and Pong.
2: Once it started to become more normal to use the internet to communicate with people, I remember, wait, we can talk more than just at school. We had right. this thing called AIM for anyone listening who aim, doesn't know aim, AIM. Even the early days of MySpace, I had friendships destroyed over your top eight. Were you on like Friendster? No, never did Friendster. That, okay. that was a little before my time. Okay. I might have been too young for that, but it was this constant revolution of now we can do this and now we can do this. Right. And wait, now this is normal. It was a very interesting time to grow up and really understand and see in real time we're connecting more. And was
1: AOL your first email address like everyone else?
2: uh, Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mine actually technically was Hotmail. I went to camp in Canada. Uh. And so everyone had Hotmail there. That was how you talk to your camp friends. Eventually, I went over to AIM. And now I guess I'm on the Gmail train. So what was your first phone? How old were you? Uh, First phone, I remember it was like a big thing to get it. It was a flip phone. I was 13 and I would mostly use it to play Snake. It was like the three buttons you click over and over oh, and yeah, text yeah. that way. Would f- I just remember there's an acronym for like the chiclet
1: keys that were like three letters like a phone.
2: Yes. What is that? TTY. I- yes. I used to be so fast at texting on mm-hmm. those things, the keys, and then you get a whole key. I remember the sidekick came out. Of oh, a sidekick, That was yeah. a revolution. Yep. A whole keyboard in your pocket? Right. Are you joking? Anyone who's anyone had a sidekick couldn't get my hands on one. I, and- I love the nostalgia of
1: like the last bastion of humans that grew up. Before the power of
2: everything we totally take for granted. Oh, yeah. I remember sending too many text messages was like an offense to be thrown out of the house. Do you know how much that cost? You sent a text message? Oh, my God. That was a home. like, I just need 10 for the month. It'll be okay. Well, in the 80s, like, back in my day, back in my day. We had to
1: wait to call people till after 7 p.m. Oh, my God. It was more expensive to call someone during the day than evening rates. Oh. <laughs> Two o'clock is $9, but eight o'clock is $6. You know, I'm saving three bucks. You're not worth three bucks, Aunt May. Sorry, Aunt May. You're done. Yeah. You're out. No spoilers. Though. Aunt May, because, you know, Spider-Man. Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm always fascinated to have these chats because I like to think that hopefully we'll turn the corner because when, like, Health 2.0 yeah became a thing, which was in 2007... Everyone's like, what the hell is that? Oh, it's instead of them yelling at you, you can yell back. <laughs> oh, done. There we go. I can yell back now. Yeah. And the haters were born. YouTube started and boom, comments were a thing. And then like, rape. Right, my doctor came and went and whatever. But I think we're at a point now where I hope there's some kind of social market correction in people recognizing that these can be used for good. You can trust them. And I akin it
2: to when we first got PayPal.
1: I'm not giving the internet my credit card. Are you crazy?
2: Yeah, I'll only give it to the person who just calls my phone randomly and says, I have a new car warranty. I need to update. They're the only ones who get my credit card. So talk to me about how telehealth was always a thing, but it was forced upon us by the pandemic, and now it's really a thing. Yeah, and in terms of the rise of the internet and telehealth 2.0 and all these different things, to bring it full circle, I mean, with great power comes great responsibility, Anything can be used for good. So we've never been more connected, but in a lot of ways, never been more disconnected. But when it comes to using that exact same focus, comments, threads, uh, bringing people into a conversation, talking about different topics, that should be your healthcare collaboration, right? It's Healthcare is a team sport. It's collaborative. So being able to tag the cardiologist, like, hey, you see in this, bring someone else into the conversation. So... Even a, almost like a social media for collaborating on your healthcare. you can use those exact same tools. The like button, that means somebody saw it. Angry. Oh, why is this blood pressure going out of control? Whatever it looks like, anything can be used with the right mindset for good to really kind of further the industry. And in terms of kind of really adopting telehealth as a norm because of the pandemic, a lot of my career before that was doing rural health Clinics. Well, you did charity stuff too. Yes, yeah, that was. I, I want to bolt that on. Yeah. That's really
1: important. Yeah,
2: <laughs> doing some charity work. I did 15 years. Do how many years? I did uh, a lot of years in the nonprofit yeah. space. Yeah, builds character. That definitely yes. will build some character. Yeah. I would say. And in a lot of that work, what I would do is go down to communities that were hit by a natural disaster, whether that's a fire, or an earthquake, a hurricane. But really, the the big one that was very much focused on healthcare was Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. Mm. So what I do for those trips is I usually scout them for about six months before I bring. Volunteers down and just the things you see, just so much of people trying to help in the right way, but not understanding how to do that because you get down there and you throw paper towels and you think that looks good. That's not what the people no, need.
1: They don't need bounty the quick of a crowd.
2: They didn't. Well, I mean, maybe a gigantic paper towel you could put in like the Ant Man growing machine. Just yes, got a giant paper towel. Pim
1: particles. Pim,
2: they needed Pim particles. Yeah. I couldn't provide that yet. Yeah. But if I had those, would have cleaned up the whole this thing. This episode, not sponsored by Marvel, but it should be. <laughs> it might be. It yeah. might be. Dark Industries. <laughs> <laughs> Making life possible here and out of patience. I mean, even those superheroes, even just Stark Tech, Pim tech what they could do for the disaster relief would yeah, be know.
1: insane. Instead, they do disaster control instead. Well they, they clean up their own messes, yeah, no one the, else's. The
2: problem is first they'll create the disaster and then they'll solve and it. it's like, oh, you're our heroes. I mean, just don't build an Ultron. Don't do that.
1: Or or there's just like some titanium dragon in Grand Central Station.
2: It's a normal Tuesday in New York. But this is like God's work. That's crazy stuff. Had you ever experienced that level of like visual trauma? It's really interesting. So working with a community hit by a disaster, you're working with some of the most resilient people on the planet. My specific focus in the disaster relief world is almost a niche at this point. We do long-term disaster relief. The way disaster relief works usually is there's three waves. The first wave is Team Rubicon, the Red Cross, the Marines, those guys get in there and they do as much as they can right when it like happens. Like rescue. Rescue. Search and rescue, making sure people are living in habitable spaces as much as they can. I hate this term, but it's called more sexy disaster relief. That's when you go down with the pictures and the Instagram and look at me helping and all those things. Yeah. Then that's when you have the next wave is really the people trying to capitalize on sexy disaster relief. Mm -hmm. We are doing disaster relief in the least sexy way possible. We went down six months to a year after disasters. That's when I think it was most important because people start to lose hope. It's been a year. You've got literal water leaking onto your bed every single night. And there was a lady who, that was the case. And you start to lose hope. No one cares. No one's coming to help me. This is just my new life. And you go a year later and you start helping the community, working with the community members, doing the things that they need done, that they've identified. That is, in my opinion, one of the most important and missed pieces in the disaster relief
1: world. Well, it's like the invisible story. Yeah. The media goes away. The cameras go away. The the vans go away. Yeah.
2: I remember it broke my heart. I would start rallying people, come on, they need help. And they'd be like, Hurricane Maria, wasn't that like a million years ago? I'm like, oh man, these people are still living with the effects of that. Even now, even today, they're still living with the effects of Hurricane Maria. So my philosophy in disaster relief is it has three tenets. The first tenet is that it has to be sustainable. Meaning even if we go down for two weeks, these projects have to go on for long after we're gone. The second one is it has to be intentional. A lot of the volunteer trips that I went on as a volunteer, they would go to these communities and say, here's what you need to do. Here's how we're going to help you. Not what I do. I spend a lot of time in the community and I say... What do you need help with? You know better than anyone. You know your community members. You've Wait, identified. Listening
1: to the people that listening need help to is a people. good way to do it's it.
2: Exactly the same thing in healthcare, right? A lot of people are creating these solutions or industries are creating these solutions without thinking about it from the patient's perspective or bringing that patient voice to the table. The Same philosophy in disaster relief. You have to talk to the people who this is going to impact and say, what do you need? So that was really the second tenet. the third one is you got to work with the locals. That is one of the most important tenets is you're working side by side together. You're empowering people to empower themselves to realize not just that people still care, but I can do something. I helped make this building better. I helped make the roof of this lady's house that's dripping water every night, I actually helped to make that a reality that that's not the case anymore. And that's what I love is quantifiable results. Same thing in disaster relief. You can point to it when you leave and you say, that no longer drips water. This garden now is rebuilt. It's hurricane proof. This building we retiled and repainted now could be used as a school again. For example, healthcare with the right mindset, you can quantifiably say is this patient getting healthier or less healthy once you start monitoring them on a day-to-day basis, weekly basis, even monthly basis, we can start to create trends. Now that it's quantifiable, I always think about, oh, do we have a responsibility now to make healthcare quantifiable, which I, always leads to better outcomes when we can catch that moment, we see health either getting better or getting worse. The people on the medications, the people getting the treatment, now we're the customer. Where the fuck have we been for the last 40 years? Totally. Exactly. And I think that is a really important point now, especially with how available the technology is, not just available, because it's been around for a while now that people are used to it. It's part of the normal conversation. We're trying to make it that this should be expected, right? Your healthcare provider should care about what happens to you outside of the nine minutes of a consultation or what happens once you leave the hospital. Now that they have the ability and the technology that they need to do that, don't they kind of have to? Doesn't that make them really a provider of healthcare? Stop asking stupid
1: questions. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> All right, we'll be right back after this break.
0: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car, you should love your car.
1: talked about, because this is ad nauseum. Yeah. How are we not the end user on day one? It's because we're not the people that pay for shit. Yes. Can you solve for that? What are the loopholes? What is working around this fucked up system?
2: Yeah, and and I think... So much of what we saw that was, quote unquote, working was only working because we were measuring the wrong things, right? We were working with this really reactive system. A patient comes in really sick, has something wrong, and we react to whatever they came in with. And we're measuring, well, how good did we do with our reaction? Do we deal with it? Did we fix it for usually only a certain Are they alive? Of time. <laughs> Are they alive? Yeah, I was part of a study where we were calling patients to figure out after a traumatic injury, how long did it take them to get back to work? And what I found was crazy is there was almost no other studies like that where people were actually calling patients after surgery, going, "How long did it take you to like get back to normal?" Not just like, "Do you still walk with a limp?" or is it was just like, "Are you feeling better already?" But that's the Medicare divide too. Yeah, totally. I mean, I lived in that
1: space as doing millennial and young adult cancer for fifteen years is that we're not the Medicare universe. We are the employer-based universe or our parents' insurance universe, (laughs) which is probably the employer-based universe. And we're more fucked than anyone else because
2: employer-based care, we don't have a choice. We need a job. I want the job. The problem with the whole system is that the people creating the rules for what constitutes good care. And Medicare, really, you have to give them some credit because for the first time, they've created codes that cover proactive healthcare. Yeah. And these are some of the most lucrative what codes. What it like again? Four years. Yeah. It took them a long time to be clear. <laughs> now, they haven't. And look, could these rules be better? Do they really accurately reflect how we can provide the best proactive healthcare? In a lot of ways, no. It really isn't. But it's a good start. One of the things that frustrates me the most about the remote monitoring world is Who are we putting the onus on to do the remote monitoring? Everyone goes, oh, it's the doctor. The doctor doesn't have time. They don't. But again, the doctor is not the end user. Exactly, exactly. So someone like a pharmacist, for example, right? You might have 10 doctors over five years, but you still go to the same community pharmacist that you've had your whole life. Right. That person you're going to call when your medication is running out, you're going to call them with your side effects, what's working, what's not working. They should be at the center of care. Right. That's a whole other tangent we could go down. But a lot of the people making the rules aren't on the ground with the patients, talking to the patients, the patient advocates and saying, what do you need from your perspective and making rules based on that.
1: So there's an over under in putting these apps and these platforms in the hands of different people based on generationality. Like what's an iPhone could be half the
2: country. Yeah, by the way, that's something that we focus on a lot is access to care. And that comes in so many shapes and sizes. And you really have to, just like on any disaster relief trip, you have to understand the needs of the community. What's the difference between a mountainous community versus one by the water? Same thing when you're talking to different patients. What do you need to make this successful? Right. There's a spectrum on tech literacy. There's a spectrum on internet access. There's a spectrum on amounts we can ask you to do.
1: There's no one size fits all. No
2: one size fits all. You can't just put, slap the same thing on everyone and put a label on and go, all right, we're going to ship you out. That's not how it works. Mm-hmm. You have to have individualized solutions and a really great system that can figure out what's the right solution for this patient. And something in terms of access to care that we've been thinking a lot about at FindTrack is access to care is not just those issues. A lot of it is also chronic conditions, right? What diseases are out there or what populations of patients need really great digital health tools that don't have access to them. And one we've been focusing on a lot lately is the oncology space, people experiencing cancer. And how do we make that really unique journey even easier and make it something that no matter where you are at that stage in your journey, something that can really help you.
1: Kind of like uh, Baymax meets Wally. Yes. Are you satisfied with your care? Are you satisfied with your care? Yeah. And by the way, (laughs)
2: people should have that voice to say, I am satisfied or I'm not satisfied with my care. You should know that. I was talking to someone the other day you've had on the show, Megs Clare. Megan Clare-Chase. Yeah, she's awesome. Z, Warrior yeah. Warrior. Megzy. Megzy. Warrior Megzy. She was actually talking to me about how she fired one of her oncologists. She's like, mm-hmm. it wasn't a good relationship. I am not satisfied with my care. Right. You know, And you should have the voice to say that, but also with the right technology, you can show exactly why. For most of the oncology journey, and I'd be curious about your own journey as you were going through this, there's something about the relationship between someone experiencing cancer and their doctor. It's one of the most Unique relationships that not just in healthcare, but in the entire world, that relationship. Mm -hmm. And our philosophy is that in any relationship, when you make it easier to communicate, you have different modalities, whether it's telehealth, phone calls, questionnaires, messaging systems, you have to find the right thing for the right person. Anytime you're increasing that communication, you're going to increase trust. When you increase trust, you say, I trust that my doctor cares about what's happening to me outside of my office. Your doctor now trusts you're taking your medication, you're being compliant. They can see your vitals that they're asking you to take, which mainly we are speaking to Dr. Mark Lewis. A huge indicator is weight. How are you are doing out with to your Mark cancer? Lewis. Shout out Dr. Mark Lewis, who, secret sauce, if you're listening,
1: will be joining the Oscar Health Oh, he's Network. amazing. He,
2: we actually just had him on a webinar about this. And that's one of the big things he was saying was really measuring patients' weight day to day, seeing fluctuations. That's a huge indicator. Someone getting out of remission. How are they doing with chemo? Different things. So the idea there is once we're increasing that trust and any relationship, you increase communication, trust, you're going to have better outcomes. And especially I mean, here.
1: I'm an unfair story, though, because I was diagnosed when there was just it nothing. Yeah. In the 1980s and 1990s. And, you know, you're alive. Isn't that enough? <laughs> it was kind of the idea. Does he have a
2: pulse? Cool. <laughs> Send him home.
1: That's it. Like drip dry him out in the curb. And yeah. Go live your life. You're fine. Meanwhile, I'm, like falling apart like the toxic Avenger. There's no analog. comparing what I went through other than the fact that we've made a lot of progress, which has opened up, I would say, better problems to have than just dying on day one, which is kind of what cancer used to be. Totally, It's very individualized who that person is, how literate they are, who they want to hear from, and what they want out of a digital
2: experience, and then who they trust in that process. Very much. And the cancer community is one that is so different from most of the communities we traditionally think about for remote monitoring. Mm-hmm. They feel so empowered by data and education. They want to know everything. They want all the data. How's my vitals doing? How was it yesterday compared to today? What are those results? How do you interpret it? Stacey Hurt is someone who I've-, I've been Shout known. out to Stacy. Shout out Stacey. One of the things that she was telling me about is when you are diagnosed, There isn't like a manual, right? The doctor isn't like, so you got cancer. Here's everything you need to know because a lot of these things are also person specific. So something that happened to Stacey, for example, is when she was going through chemo, something weird started happening with her fingernails. You start going, what? What is that? There's no rule book on that. But what, what we're talking about here is doing two things really differently in the cancer space that we're really trying to innovate by bringing in a lot of these patient advocates. It's two things. Number one is. Education, pushing the right piece of education at the right time. So you put into your doctor chief complaint something weirds happening with my fingernails. We'll push you the right article or the right video about here's what's actually going on.
1: It's being served. I would almost say bespoke content. Bespoke content, exactly artisanal content.
2: Artisanal content. I like that. You know, maybe we'll maybe we'll take that artisanalmedia.com. That's (laughs) the new company we're starting. That That nedatomic dustbin. We're gonna starting a band and a media
1: company. This is great. (laughs) Very productive. So I mentioned eBay and. PayPal and hesitancies to put your shit online. And today we are the product because everything's fucking free. Right. And yet
2: there are still some people that are hesitant to put their health data online. How do you solve for that? I remember a lot of the jokes going around when the vaccine first came out, they're microchipping you. It's like, I already know exactly where you are. You have a phone. I remember my little brother got a bird and I got home and I was like, I'd love to be able to take the bird on a walk. I wish I had some sort of bird harness five minutes later, I'm scrolling on Facebook. I get an ad for a bird harness. Oh, they hear you. I'm like, that's actually really useful. I don't know. (laughs) I'm telling you, I'm going to see ads now on Instagram for
1: Amazon Music and Ned's Atomic. Oh, totally.
2: Oh, totally. So in terms of of the health data and the health privacy, that is of the utmost importance. And a lot of the ways that it's being used right now, it's being misappropriated. It's being sold without your consent, Mm -hmm. without you knowing really is the biggest issue. So a lot of the issues around health data security and health data privacy, it's a fascinating new world, especially with how much we're sharing. And also, there's something interesting on the other end of that, which is the more people we are getting data on, let's say, who are going through a specific kind of cancer, right? We find different metrics or different ways that we're measuring that are more or less successful. That's really useful to the whole community. So what's our responsibility to share versus keep it all buttoned up? It's raising a lot of these interesting questions. In terms of the health privacy, there are so many regulations. You have to be Fort Knox. Like Captain America couldn't even get in there. Lots of lawyers. Lots of lawyers. But the idea is, how do we think about this kind of data? And I think that's also something that's shifting as well. Hopefully, AI is going to serve you shit because it knows you had a colonoscopy.
1: Hey, it's creepy because I just bought the luggage and I'm seeing luggage ads now. <laughs> but is that the
2: future of access? It's really interesting because access, that word is... The way we're using it here, it's almost like synonymous with knowledge, right? Right. What kind of knowledge is out there and what am I okay with them assuming based on that knowledge of me, Mm -hmm. right? So if they know I just got a colonoscopy, there are certain kind of things that come along with that, that maybe would be really useful to let me know like, hey, if you just got a colonoscopy, you should buy X, Y, and Z, and it'll make your journey way better. But also it's terrifying to know why do they know I just got a colonoscopy? That is terrifying. Right. So like everything, I think it's a healthy balance somewhere in the middle.
1: So this reminds me of that movie Envy with Jack Black and oh, yeah. Ben Stiller it's with Vaporise. Yeah,
2: with Vaporise. But like yeah.
1: Vaporise is gonna pop up as an yes. ad when they know you got colonoscopy.
2: Yeah. And by the way, it would be a great product if someone can figure that out. But yeah. <laughs> and he bought them the horse. Remember the horse yeah. at the end? That was one of the weirdest but best past pass Folks, cast Google it. ever. It's a
1: good underrated film. Jack Black, Ben Stiller. Yeah. Those two you can't go wrong. All right. So Vitrak is the company. Solving all the access issues in the world for everyone—no big deal. Whatever. Yeah, Hulk style, <laughs> Hulk style. We got it.
2: What's the website? Vitrac, V-Y-T-R-A-C. Yep, vytrac dot com. Vitrac, vitals you track. Because the idea is also to empower the patient to bring them into the conversation. When you get diagnosed or have a chronic condition, what's your responsibility to keep yourself healthy? But also on the other end, what's the doctor's responsibility to keep you healthy? It's a team.
1: Right. I just want to thank you again. I saw you an EMT. Yeah. That's good shit. (laughs) Really grateful for that
2: service. A lot of what Vitrack became was because of my experience as a medic, because as a medic, you see a side of healthcare that no one else gets to see. The real dirt, the underbelly, the dark web of healthcare. You understand when you're giving the nurse your patient reports and where that goes and that whole journey. And also we would pick up patients all the time and you would see their blood pressure spiking through the roof. And you would say to yourself, how did they get this bad? You would see someone on their fifth diabetic ulcer. How did they get this bad? answer is Olive Garden. Yeah. Those breadstick deals,
1: yeah. I'm kosher, but I've heard. It'll be, oh, you garden. Oh, you love garden. You know,
2: you got me? I the breadsticks.
1: <laughs> All right. To infinity and beyond. Yes. Actually, that's Toy Story. Uh, Avengers Assemble. Avengers Assemble. Good enough. Avengers a- Assemble. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Zachary Fink, CEO and co-founder of Vitrack. What's your Twitter handle? Twitter handle is at thinkingoutloud1. Thinking out loud, one. Yeah, right, we'll put that in the episode description. Awesome. And obviously, it'll be all out there. <laughs>
2: I love a good pun.
1: <laughs> well, you're coming back. Awesome. You're you you. officially I'm recurring guest Perfect. who hasn't occurred yet.
2: Well, soon to be.
1: Thanks, folks. Thanks everyone time. for listening.
2: That's all for now. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Tell us what you'd like Matthew to cover in his next episode by leaving a message for us at 855-AUDIO-66, and we might just use it in a future show. Out of Patients is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Betsy Shepard. Our host is Matthew Zachary. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Betsy Shepard. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit
0: offscript.com.